0: Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the AHPBA podcast. We're extremely excited today to share our interview with Dr. Flavio Roca. Dr. Roca is a surgical oncologist and HPB surgeon at OHSU, where he serves as a professor of surgery and the Hedinger chair and division head of surgical oncology. Dr. Roca's clinical and research interests include pancreas cancer and cholangiocarcinoma, as well as other cancers of the upper GI tract. We had a great discussion focusing on biliary tract cancers, and specifically, Dr. Roca shared his expertise on topics including gallbladder cancer and the opt-in trial. We hope you all enjoy the episode. Dr. Roca, thanks so much for joining us on the HPBA podcast. It's such a pleasure to have you. We're also so excited to have Dr. Vega joining us, who our Latin American listeners know and love. So thank you so much, Dr. Vega, for joining us as well.
1: Thank you for the invitation. We are very happy to be here.
0: Dr. Roca, can you start off um, with telling the listeners a little bit about um, your background and your journey to surgery?
2: Sure. Well, yeah, I can kind of give a little, uh, you know, a succinct overview. But uh, right. believe it or not, I'm actually from uh, Brazil originally. So I was actually born in Latin America. Uh, Portuguese is my, is my uh, native language. Uh, but because my mother was a diplomat, we kind of moved around a bit. So we left Brazil. I spent some time in Italy, started schooling in Italy, but then came to the U.S. and, and uh, you know, grew up in Chicago. Um, to my diplomat mother, and my my father was a history teacher. Um, and early on, I kind of knew I had a little bit of interest in science and uh, in medicine, you know, went out to college and got an engineering degree uh, in Baltimore, uh, and then came home for a uh, uh, medical school at the University of Chicago. And that's where I really kind of started the, the bug with surgery. I had um, I had the opportunity to spend a, a summer in the lab with, uh, with Dr. John L. Verde. Uh, who's really kind of a, a transformative, you know, surgeon, investigator, looking at, you know, gut microbiome, and that kind of started the, the ball rolling. Um, and then, you know, left uh, Chicago, was fortunate to match uh, in Boston at the Brigham, uh, had a wonderful residency experience there, uh, lots of great mentors. Uh, mentors. Um, and then that's where I kind of developed the interest in going into oncology. And again, was fortunate to match at, uh, at Memorial Sloan Kettering, where I did my surgical oncology fellowship. Uh, as well as my hepatobiliary surgery uh, fellowship, which was nice to tie in together. And, uh, you know, that was, gosh, 2011. So now we're looking, you know, 11 years later. Um, So, but still, still enjoying what I do.
3: So can you talk a little bit about, you know, what the last 11 years have looked like for you? I mean, you've sort of found your niche um, in the world of uh, biliary tract. And how did you find that? Is that something that sort of you knew coming out of fellowship you were going to do or just kind of the opportunities arose? Can you talk a little
2: bit about that? Yeah, no, that's actually a very, very good topic. So, you know, I think most of us, um, you know, uh, at least I can talk about my, my colleagues as we went into surgical oncology fellowship thinking, boy, boy, I'd love to be doing big cases and whipples and I, you know, th- those kind of things. And then as I got to Memorial realized that, you know, cholangiocarcinoma was sort of this little known disease doesn't have as much attention as, uh, perhaps some of the more, um, you know, more common uh, tumors that we deal with. And so that kind of interest combined with the experience that they had, you know, I was fortunate to get involved with um, a, a BloomGuard staging system that, you know, more had a very large experience with that, was able to kind of review that information uh, and then uh, really develop that interest at that time. Uh, uh, and then being in fellowship, I was actually hope, uh, be able to take advantage of you know, the ASCO uh, clinical trials course. So Memorial, having that experience with intra pump therapy, uh, I designed a trial looking at adjuvant uh, pump treatment for intrapatic cholangios. Uh, actually, was able to go out to Colorado, do the course, write the trial. Um, you know, and after I left, uh, I think Mike D'Angelica tried to open the you know, open the trial, but it was just hard to accrue at that point. There weren't many other centers that were doing it. Um, I'm hoping that, you know, with our new interest in HAI and the new centers that have opened up, we're hoping to resuscitate that, uh, that concept. The other thing that really kind of launched things is based on that, I then applied for an ASCO Young Investigator Award. Uh, and at the time, it happened that the Colangio Carcinoma Foundation was sponsoring one of them. And so the proposal that I put out was picked as the, the Colangio Foundation uh, ASCO YIA, which was just, again, fortuitous timing and that they had that available. I was able to take that grant to my first job in Seattle. Uh, and that proposal was to establish a biobank bank to look at early diagnosis. And you know, Memorial had lots of cancer bile but had no benign bile. So it was perfect when I went to a more general hospital, was able to collect the, essentially the controls for that study. And then we we're able to kind of look at uh, biomarkers and bile. And uh, one of my uh, research residents, first research residents actually did uh, some of that work. And it was great to see that come to fruition and then watch his career develop as he then did his own hepatobiliary fellowship and is on faculty uh, currently at UAB. So that kind of started the path. And um, I really can't thank you know, my mentors and the foundation enough for kind of launching that career because that. Then help spur on everything else that I've been able to do, um, you know, including uh, the neoadjuvant trial that you know we'll get to at some point to discuss with cholangiocarcinoma. So it's just been just a wonderful experience. Uh, I've gotten to meet other you know specialists in cholangiocarcinoma, you know, in medical oncology and gastroenterology and IR and pathology. Um, been able to you know travel to Asia to kind of see what that disease looks like in a, in a more endemic setting. Um, and have made friends and collaborators there. So it's really been uh, just a pleasure and a joy. Um, and, you know, like I said, it's, you know, 10, you know, 11 years in at this point. I still feel like we're, you know, we've done a lot. The field has evolved amazingly, but we're still, you know, not quite where we want to be. So there's lots to do.
3: Dovetailing off that, do you have advice for people who are in fellowship right now, how they should find their niche? Do you think it's, you know, try to find the underserved disease? And then, you know, how did like the foundation and stuff like that? You just kind of took a chance and and it happened to work out, you know. I I think it was the other
2: way around. I think they took a chance on me, right? So I think, you know, again, and watching that process grow up, we almost grew up together, right? It was really sort of a small uh, grassroots effort, you know, coming out of, you know, Salt Lake City with a very dedicated family and group. And the foundation has now grown dramatically, uh, and they are just involved at almost every aspect. They're really the go to resource uh, for this disease. But I would say for fellows, yeah, it's, it's great to kind of early on try to identify a niche, right? So pick what, and whether it is a rare disease site or something that you're interested in, that your particular you know, institution or center has perhaps an ex- expertise or unique angle to, to do that. Um, you know, as you know, the you know the funding environment, everything's pretty competitive, and so it's always hard to necessarily be the, the person uh, in a very common site. But you find something that's a, maybe a little rarer. You have a a, a different spin on it. Um, I think it's very very uh, uh, you know helpful to do that. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is that a lot of these things you have to seek out. I, I felt that sometimes it wasn't as advertised. You know, these ASCO trial uh, uh, clinical trials courses. Even the young investigator program, the career development program, sometimes we feel that maybe those are more tailored towards medical oncology, radiation oncologists, but I think as surgical oncologists, they're certainly available. And in some ways, as a surgeon, you, you become a more attractive candidate because you do bring that certain uh, perspective to it.
3: Picking on your expertise a little bit. So what's, what do you think the kind of cool new stuff in Calangio is? What are you excited about? Is it mutational profiling? Is it your pump trial? And, and what... Um, mechanism you're going to use to resurrect that
2: yeah that's that's been honestly the the fantastic thing about watching this this field develop right i mean here we're talking about a tumor that was almost a tumor of exclusion right you come in you got a liver mass we don't know what to do with it we might be a met might not be you do the workup yeah it's a cancer yes it's resectable let's take care of it or maybe it's widespread and we can't but what we've learned, you know, with the advent of molecular profiling, is that gosh, it's cholangiocarcinoma is now probably the, the most common GI tumor with the most mutations. So you got something like more than fifty percent actionable mutations. So you know the field has sort of moved along with the profiling and as well with the with the drug tar- the drugs that have become available for these targets, uh, and that's been really exciting. And so certainly, as you know, a lot of that typically happens in the advanced setting more commonly. And so, as you know, the the agents that are currently approved, they're really approved in the second line setting after folks fail uh, or the the, the treatment fails uh, in the metastatic setting. But I would love for us surgeons to bring that into the earlier setting, right? So can we bring this in the localized, perhaps, you know, borderline resectable or unresectable uh, situation, and this is where I think there's, it's a ripe area for investigation because we, we really don't know what the role of profiling. We're just sort of learning the role of profiling in resectable disease or with other adjuncts to therapy. So whether that's with Y90, with TACE, with PUMP. And so there's just been a few reports that have come out uh, here and there. Uh, and that's, that's the exciting piece because um, for us, as you know, as surgeons, we're just trying to get more people to surgery. Right. The more the more we can expand the candidate pool, I think the better we'll be. And then yeah. lastly, is how do we prevent recurrence? Right. Because you know, it's for us it's so frustrating to do these big cases and then you get the first imaging scan and there's you know something funny, a nodule, or something else. So, Flavio, which patient do you take to surgery? Which is for you a
1: resectable intrapatic glandular?
2: It's a great question because I think there is probably two ways to think about it. There's the uh, technically resectable. There's a the biologically resectable, right? And so, certainly as a liver surgeon, you know we feel that as long as we can remove the tissue with a good margin, we're leaving enough liver remnant behind. That's technically resectable. But what happens with cholangio a lot of times is that it's it may have multifocal disease, and then is multifocal disease in the same lobe or in a different lobe? Is that T2 disease or is that M1 disease? Um, so that's always something that kind of makes you wonder if that's somebody that should have perhaps some upfront therapy. Same thing with portal lymph nodes, you know, for a long time, even when mm-hmm. I was actually in training, you know, there was not a role for lymphadenectomy for cholangiocarcinoma uh, in the intrapatic setting. It was really only reserved uh, for the Hylers. And so what we've learned over time is that, boy, it really contributes to staging. Now, does lymphadenectomy make a difference in survival? It's still unclear, but I certainly feel that those patients are probably more biologically advanced and may benefit from some other therapy before resection.
3: So who who in your hands currently, who do you straight who's going straight to the OR and who's getting therapy first? And then you know, I think the tough thing is you gotta get buy-in, like, you know, if you have a medical oncologist that says, Well, it's not in the NCCN guidelines, I can't do that. You right, know, right. How do you get buy-in and, and what are you treating with?
2: Yeah, so that's excellent, excellent questions, and of course, you also have to deal with you know patients, right? Patients want to come in and say, "I have a lesion, I want this out." Um, and so, certainly for uh, you know a, a dominant lesion, no suspicious lymph nodes, I, you know the standard of care would still be uh, resection. Um, but more and more, what we've learned is that even in resectable cases, the recurrence rate is about fifty percent at two years, and so that's the kind of rationale that I use with my colleagues to say, look. We can take this out, but because of X, Y, and Z, I'm a little concerned about these other, uh, these other, reg- these other features. Maybe it's worthwhile uh, giving up front therapy. Now, that being said, there's no standard of care for that. So that's why we designed the original NEOGAP trial, which was just presented at ASCO, and we're currently submitting the manuscript, to look at this oncologically high-risk population. And we chose the, you, you mentioned uh, regimens. We chose the GAP regimen, which is gemcisabraxane, because it really showed some promising results in the phase two setting. And it's, it
1: was gem um, yeah. oncology, right?
2: It was jam oncology. Yeah. It was a, it was a phase two MD Anderson and Mayo Clinic um, combined study, all biliary tract cancer. But interestingly, out of the 12 patients that they converted to resection, nine were intrapatochalangias.
1: Yeah. And they had pathological response in that. That was and the had The response. First, yeah. That's surprisingly.
2: Yeah, and then the other piece of that is that, um, you know, the 1815 trial, the SWOG trials, we're kind of talking about cooperative groups, is that looked at that regimen compared to Sys, the, the, you know, the former standard of care, and that accrued briskly. Now, we're still waiting for those results, and so it may become the new standard in the advanced setting as well.
1: So just to be in the recipe, right, um, because we all talk about trial response, mm-hmm. um, why don't we talk about how you approach an colangio? So you give us your recipe.
2: That recipe, Um, I liked
1: it. What do you use, CT or MRI?
2: Ah, great question. So I think most of the times, as you know, patients will come in with some sort of cross-sectional imaging, uh, CT. Unfortunately, it's usually not of adequate quality because it may be a broad CT. Uh, And so for, you know, planning purposes, I really need a good, um, you know, four-phase liver CT. To really look at the arterial portal and even delayed phases, uh, particularly for planning for a pump, because we do need to get a sense of the hepatic arterial anatomy. Um, that being said, you know, one of my colleagues uh, and partners, Dr. Mayo, has actually published a nice paper looking at MRI to look for occult uh, satellite lesions. And so that's something that we certainly take into account when we discuss at a multidisciplinary tumor board um i am a big proponent of getting that pre-op biopsies for these patients because again i think the molecular information uh is important um again it may not play a role necessarily upfront, although i tell you i've now had a handful of patients that have had um uh microsatellite instability or mmr deficiency which we've treated with upfront immunotherapy with some dramatic responses uh
1: how do you get it with the insurance
2: uh, the, the profiling is actually pretty straightforward. I got to tell you, I think in, in this disease, it's been, uh, uh relatively accepted. I can't tell you it's a hundred percent penetrance, uh, but we really haven't had that much trouble getting the profiling information. And then, as you said, so I think if, if they fall into resectable category, we'll resect them. If they're somewhat borderline, we may offer up, uh, upfront uh, therapy, uh, based on our initial trial experience. Um, the bigger question to me, what do you do after surgery? Right. I think the the adjuvant portion is still very much up in the air, in my opinion.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But before that, what yep. do we what do we tell me? Because it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a question that I always have. When are we doing PET?
2: Ah, yeah. So I am personally, I am a, a proponent of PET only when you find abnormalities in the cross-sectional imaging. So I don't think it has widespread application. Uh, if you do have some lymph nodes that are enlarged, that are perhaps outside of the resection field, you know retroperitoneal nodes, aortic cable nodes, uh, that that's somewhere where I might want to get a PET, and it's really just to make sure that I don't have disease outside my resection field.
3: What about nodes in your resection field? Does that change your surgery first choice? If they're resectable with a big porta cable node that's hot on PET, are you still going to do it?
2: Yeah. So a uh, little bit of a dealer's choice again. I think if I had my, if it was completely under my control, I, I might want to uh, talk to that patient about upfront therapy. Um, if if that was not the case and we were going to go to surgery, I, I wouldn't be necessarily opposed to it. Uh, but just realizing that the biology there is probably not as not as good, and I would worry about uh, a recurrence in that patient. So I'd have to be think really carefully about that.
1: Location of lymph node, where where okay. is resectable?
2: Right. So I really, you know, think the portal lymph nodes are, are, are inbounds. So the station eight, station 12 nodes, including that portal cable node, I think t- Tim was referring to, we always see that big, chunky node. But more and more, we're also learning that perhaps we should tailor our lymphadenectomy based on location of the pr- of the tumor itself. So that, um, you know, in left-sided tumors, I do tend to skeletonize up to the left gastric nodes as well. And I do like to collect those. I consider those inbounds. Now, for a right-sided tumor, left gastric nodes may be a little bit outside the field. And so that's where it's a little bit of an individualized decision. Uh, we don't have a lot of great data to vary the lymphadenectomy, but I do think uh, there are the lymphatic drainages uh, that are somewhat unique.
1: Size of the tumor. And uh, I know that been a study that stratified the risk of recurrence by size, It's been published in Annals of Surgical Oncology and multiple. Pollack has done multiple calculators with size in tumor. How do you decide which one, you know, more than five centimeters, more than what?
2: No, I don't, I don't really have a size cut off. Again, I think we do know that the bigger the tumor, the, the higher likelihood of recurrence that is a risk factor. Um, I really worry more about multifocality. Okay. Uh, How do
1: you define that? Because definition <laughs> of multifocality is the entire, that's the game of intrapericulangio.
2: That is correct. That is that's, correct. So,
1: that's the game. Because the question is, let's say you're going to resect um, segment six and you have a lesion segment seven. Totally achievable by a posterior resection. What do you do? And yeah. is that patient distant metastasis?
2: Right. So the short answer is, unfortunately, we don't know. Right. And the AJCC doesn't help us with that staging portion. Um, I would say The multifocality, that's satellite lesions, right? So it's small things around the primary tumor. I would probably still consider for resection. The ones that are in a contralateral lobe to me are for sure, you know, intrahepatic metastases or M1 disease. The scenario you just outlined is complicated, right? Because as you said, it's in the same, let's say, distribution of a sector, but it might be a little bit further away than the primary tumor. Uh, so that's a that's a case where I might say, you know what, let's just give you upfront therapy or you actually may be a good uh, pump candidate in that scenario because the pump is going to treat the entire liver. And there is some recent data uh, coming out to say that maybe multifocality should be treated by pump versus resection.
1: We know why it would it be different pump than systemic chemotherapy is in in biliary tract cancer.
2: Well, similar to uh, colorectal liver metastases, we know that the tumors in the liver are gonna derive their blood supply from the hepatic artery alone. And the drug that's put into the pump, the FUDR, gets concentrated 400 times its original dose, just in the liver. So you're really delivering a much higher dose, very little systemic um, uh, washout. Uh, And so that's the, the, the rationale. Now, that being said, we typically don't treat with pump alone, we do give a, a systemic component. And that's a little up in the air is what what should that be? Should that be gem cis? Should that be gem ox? Should that be something like fulfirinox? Um So there are there is a little bit of controversy there. There are a couple of trials that are currently uh, accruing. The other question is also, why just limit the pump drug to FUDR? So I think as we move forward with this technology and more centers, should we be looking at different drugs delivered intra-arterially?
1: Have you had any complication yet with the pump? Because we all talk about all the things that memorial is located in has been oh. building year by year. Right. But now we're talking and promoting to start pump in institutions that don't have the experience, don't have the people, and we don't have
3: the, in, enough data. Eduardo, maybe the larger question is we'll step away from Clangio a little bit, but come back to it. Can you talk about your experiencing leaving Memorial and then starting a pump program? Was there any program when you you know I know you've switched institutions recently, but maybe yeah. you can talk about both experiences. Sure. That, I think that's the question that comes up is like, you know people in our in our sort of age group, Eduardo and me, there there's all this exciting stuff about pump, but it's like, where can we actually do pumps? you know can can we start a program anywhere? How much? institutional support you need? It seems like a lot. Um, yeah. And so maybe yeah, no. can you can talk about that experience.
2: No, no, that's a, that's a great question. Yes. My full disclosure, I trained at Memorial. I put in pumps as a fellow there. I reviewed the data. I know the data very well. Then left for about 10 years and saw as the other centers developed it. But, you know, one of my co-fellows, Paul Kerr-Nicholas, who went out to Toronto, started the first program in Canada um, very thoughtfully, right, from the ground up, making sure that everything was, was lined up. Uh, you know, University of Pittsburgh had been doing pumps probably as long as Memorial, maybe not the same uh, volume, but they've had a successful program over the years. Um, at, when I was in Seattle, we actually started, we're about to open the the, the, uh, the second program in the Northwest, and then, unfortunately, I, I transitioned and left. Uh, but I, when I came down here to Oregon, one of my partners, Dr. Mayo, who also had trained at Memorial, had started the program in 2016, but I can certainly tell you that it is a very resource-intensive effort. Uh, it takes the buy-in, obviously, of your medical oncologist, but also it's there's it a big nursing component. There's a very big imaging component. Um, you know, the the risks are real, right? So whether these are we're talking about vascular complications or biliary complications, uh, they can happen, um, and so uh, I, I think it takes a village. And so I think you really have to get institutional commitment, colleague buy-in to do it. Um, but I tell you, there's been, you may have seen some of the presentations, there's now been a renewed interest. There's several centers that have now opened it. And granted, I think it's been mostly Memorial alumni who have over- opened them, but not exclusively. There are centers in Mexico, there are centers in the Netherlands that are part of the consortium. And I'm happy to report that you know now the first pump trial for colorectal metastases since the the memorial era is actually making its way through the cooperative groups under the leadership of, of Mike Litsky at Duke. And so that's now basically, hopefully, uh, it's not fully approved yet, but maybe make it into the, um, you know, when well, we talk about the modern world of, of systemic chemotherapy. So
3: talk about the logistics a little bit. So you're putting the pump in and then you hand them off to med- medical oncology. How often are you involved in the it, pump chemo versus them, things like that?
2: Right. It's very much a collaborative, collaborative effort. So when patients are referred, we see them together. Uh, we get the, uh, as I mentioned, the HAI CT scan to really look at the, at the vessels. And that's something that is very helpful. We have to kind of train our radiologists to really get that special protocol so we can see what the vessel distribution looks like, what the width of the GDA is, what the aberrant anatomy is. Uh, and we actually also have them see one of our social workers. You know, one of the, the challenges with the pump, as you know, is that it has to be continuously filled. So it's not something that can go dry. And with the transition from the original Codman device to the Medtronic device, which was a, uh, um, a pain pump that was retrofitted to become an hepatic artery <laughs> uh, device. Uh, but now the new, you know, Codman pump is making its way back within Terra. So there's a lot of kind of back and forth. Um, but really, we, we do a lot of co-management. So the patients are seen together. Obviously, the surgeon is putting in the, um, uh, the device, but we check the perfusion in the operating room. Then when the patients are uh, up on the floor, we do also do a SPECT scan to make sure there's no extrapatic perfusion by nuclear medicine. And we actually involve our interventional radiologists in that, in that uh, uh, process so that they cannulate the pump on the floor, patient goes down to nuclear medicine, gets their test done, and come out. If there is extrapatic fusion, they get an angio to make sure that, that those branches get knocked off, and then the patient usually gets their first fill uh, before they leave, and then when they come back to clinic, they're, again, they're co-seen by medical oncology, surgical oncology. We go over the images, go over the liver function tests, and so it's really a very much a co-management model.
0: Dr. Rocha, can you talk a little bit um, for the trainees about how this fits into the systemic chemotherapy options?
2: Yeah. So we've been doing it in the Calangia world for the uh, patients that have localized but unresectable disease. And we do it uh, uh, two ways. One, we have a protocol. So there, we actually have a trial that uh, is actually enrolling patients who are chemo-naive uh, to get the pump therapy along with systemic therapy. And the interesting part about that trial is that there's lots of correlative endpoints to it. So not only is blood um, uh, serum and then tissue being collected at the various points Patients are also getting quality of life surveys. And so they're actually meeting with a medical anthropologist to kind of discuss everything from symptoms to anxiety to how they feel that the treatment is going. And so we're hoping to learn a lot in that protocol. And again, that's being spearheaded by by Sky Mayo in our department. It's his Helix ICC trial. We're actually hopefully just getting through the first safety run-in and then we'll be enrolling more patients. How does nodal disease factor into that trial? Yeah, so again, the patients have to have nodes within the boundary, because the no, the lymphadenectomy mm-hmm. does occur during the pump placement, uh, as does the cholecystectomy. And that's another piece that people yeah. sometimes forget is that you got to take the gallbladder out because that gets fed by the cystic artery. So you don't want to get chemotherapy in your gallbladder. Uh, but the nodes are removed. And so okay. uh, you get those out. Uh, and the way we left it at the protocol, it's sort of at the surgeon's discretion of what's inbounds and out of bounds. But we've been trying to Keep a very homogeneous cohort so that we're really going to compare apples to apples in the end.
1: Um, we talk about lymph node. Um, yes. What do you think about number of lymph node?
2: Oh boy. Oh boy. Yeah, this is also <laughs> such a moving target, right? Um, so as you know, you know, you know, I don't, I don't sit around counting lymph nodes. So I, I take what's in the porta and I take it out, and I'm always secretly in the background hoping I have six, right? Because that's what <laughs> the ACC tells us.
1: Because someone told us that,
2: right? <laughs> right. So it's hard, you know, these, you know, these numbers are based on large data sets, so it's hard to know what the actual biologic significance is. I think as long as you're doing a good, uh, you know, clearance of the porta, whatever nodes are there are whatever nodes are there. So, uh, uh, and so we, can, we can quibble about what the optimal number is and, and what's published in the literature. But in the end, I think that's it's more for academic circles.
1: <laughs> you mentioned something about, uh, you, you do biopsy pretty frequent now. Um, how frequent? You have a number? How frequent do you do biopsy? Um, do you do biopsy in a patient that you think you're going to take it to neoadjuvant treatment? Oh, yes. Uh, yeah. Resectable patient, I assume you don't do any biopsy, right?
2: Well, um, yes and no. I mean, I think if it's, uh, if it's, if we're going to go straight to the abdomen, I still like to get the information because I've had that, like I said, I had that small number of patients that are uh, MMR deficient, which I've treated up front. The bigger question which comes up is, you know, what do we do with patients that respond to immunotherapy? Yeah, do they Good. need resection? Uh, there's been a lot of, as you know, uh, press about the the rectal cancer study with immunotherapy, where the, it was a complete clinical response. I personally don't think we're quite ready there with this disease. Um, in fact, I had you know had a couple of recent cases where there was about you know a great response, but still you know 95 percent dead tumor, but five percent viability. So I still don't think we're going to be out of business yet. But boy, wouldn't it be amazing to get, to, you know, if you win that genetic lottery and have that tumor that responds. It's a small percentage, right? We're talking about one to two percent of cases. But as, the, as we identify more targets, right, what is the role of IDH inhibition in the resectable setting? We don't know. FGFR fusions, right? We now have, we're going to have probably about five or six drugs for FGFR fusions. How do we line up who, who gets what first? So to me, the more we learn the better off we'll be.
1: I had the other day the conversation with a patient talking about those um, mutations. It came out the uh, question about which one is better. Do you know which one is better?
2: No, you know, there's been no comparisons about which one uh, is better. Uh, even, you know, if you, and you can't do cross-trial comparisons. I actually, for the trainees, I always tell them, you know, we do all these, we have these debates and we have at the meetings and we say, well, this, this survival was better than the other one. But you got to remember, every trial has got its own different inclusion criteria. So you really, unless you're compared head-to-head prospectively, it's hard to say one is better than the other, which makes it complicated if you think about it. How how do we design trials now, right? Which drug do we use? And, you know, right now we're just starting to do the trials for the first-line setting. So what I would like to do is be able to accelerate that and bring it up in the neoadjuvant setting. Uh, because that's where we can really learn the information because you're getting the tissue ahead of time. This is, again, the importance of the pre-op biopsy. You're giving the treatment, and then you're resecting the patient, so you can actually really look in that tumor microenvironment what is going on biologically with that drug.
1: Let's say the patient had complete pathological response. What do you do?
2: Ah, I knew we were going to get to the adjuvant portion at some point. Nice. Um, wide open space here, right? So, yes, we have the Cap trial. Keep in mind that the Bill Cap trial was again an all-comer population, mostly distal cholangios. So it's hard to know how it's applicable to intrahepatics or to hylers even, or to gallbladder cancer. To be honest, so uh, obviously we're all waiting for the Actica trial results. That's going to compare, you know, um, GEMSYS to the Cape Cytarabine. But what I'm really excited about is ctDNA. I think this is going to be the game changer. You know, we're just starting to see its impact in colorectal cancer in stage two disease with the dynamic trial being published. We now have COBRA and Circulate being uh, accruing now. But I would love to see ctDNA being collected in the cholangial world, right? Not only to look at response to therapy, but just like you said, what is the MRD after resection? I Boy, I'd really like to know how much residual tumor there is uh, after a resection, because you may want to say the ctDNA negative patients may omit therapy. Or the ones that are persistently positive, you may escalate therapy. So that's going to be the future.
1: Yeah, This is where we need new hook.
2: <laughs> that's right. I get very excited about CTDN. <laughs> that's
3: right. <laughs> you would, you would off and spend the next half hour on that. One last
1: question. One, one, no, one, please. One, one more, one more. What do you think about build cap? When do you use capacitabine? When do you use GEMSYS? I had difficult yeah. time to select adjuvant treatment for my patient. And we have that, um, you know, Bill yeah, allegedly is the only one who demonstrates anything, right? I gave the resident
3: it, lecture on this a couple of weeks ago and my summary was basically nobody knows what to do. <laughs>
2: <So>. <laughs> yeah, I, I, again, I think, you know, I got to give credit to obviously, uh, you know, my colleagues who put it together. It's a very difficult trial to accrue. You know, we we, yeah. we tried putting together an adjuvant trial for Calandra in the US and it just, it just died on the vine. Um, so, you know, it took 10 years to accrue. So, lots of time. And that's why, you know, Cape Cytobine versus observation was the design. Um, it's interesting when you look at the curves. I mean, the numerical difference is so large, right? Mm-hmm. But it's really the per protocol populations where you see the difference. So, it, to me, it always makes you wonder when, you know, two or three patients flip the entire uh, results of the trial. So, I, you know, I'm not overtly enthused by it. I think it has been accepted as the, as the standard of care. And so I do think, you know, for the, the garden variety, you know, resected patient, it's still probably what we should do. I do think, though, that those patients that have more advanced disease, I worry.
1: Do you use it?
2: That's yes, we do. Do you use it? Do you
1: put the patient only in Selora if the patient's N1 positive after T2 uh, tumor, T2N1? Do you put the patient only in Selora? patient that can tolerate the entire gem oncology.
2: We are welcome to come at our tumor board to hear all the hand waving and all the, <laughs> but yeah, no, we, 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 we follow, you know, we followed the data. Um, we really don't have great data to say adjuvant gem cyst is the way to go, but this ties very nicely with the discussion of gallbladder cancer too, right? Because again, how does that fit in? And to me, that's a much more aggressive cancer. We wanted to maybe touch on the um, oh, opt-in you know. trial, which if you look at the arms of opt-in, the perioperative therapy and the adjuvant therapy is actually GEM-CIS. The interesting part about that concept is that that trial as it was being developed by uh, by Shish or Maythel was before bilcap. And so the actual, the initial uh, uh, adjuvant arm was just going to be observation only. Then bilcap comes out. They have to redesign the trial now to say, well, now we have a standard of care that's Cape that's capecitabine. But how do you justify giving preoperative GEM-CIS and then adjuvant capecitabine and the back end. Then you're you're asking too many questions because now you're not only asking the neoadjuvant question, you're asking the agent question. And yep. I got to give him kudos for sticking through the cooperative group system and actually getting the design to really be this clean design of upfront therapy followed by adjuvant gem cis compared to perioperative gem cis.
3: Just to finish the clangio, so nobody's excited about chemo. Everybody's excited about targeted therapy. You have a patient with a actionable mutation in the adjuvant setting, but you're probably stuck because insurance won't cover. Are you just waiting until they develop metastatic disease to give them the therapy you know is going to work?
2: yeah, I, th- I think that's really the the paradigm at this point. So you give obviously what the accepted therapy, but you know, and you know, and our medical oncologists do this a little bit better than we do, right? When they think about a patient, they're thinking about first line, second line, third line. They yeah. almost want to kind of keep things in their back pocket because they know ultimately there's going to be a recurrence and so i think that's that's where we you know we have to kind of start thinking that way to say okay let's give what we know is the best adjuvant therapy then when that fails then we can move on to sort of the our the other tools in our toolbox and so you don't want to necessarily burn through all of that up front
3: and are you are you satisfied with the recipe at this point yeah great (laughs) (laughs) that was a tour de force on clan go ahead sorry
0: How does um, MIS play into your treatment paradigm?
2: Yeah. So again, I think MIS is uh, a technology. It's an approach. You know, you have to really think about the biology first, but I think if you are a skilled surgeon that can, you know, do the operation safely with uh, oncologic appropriateness, then by all means, I think it's, you know, we should be able to explore that. I think folks get into trouble when they say it's, it's superior or somehow makes a difference in the biology of the cancer. And so to me, I got to tell you, I think it's very, very helpful in minor liver surgery because as you can imagine, you have a, a segment seven lesion that would require a subcostal incision versus some MIS approach. That patient is going to do probably better with an MIS approach because they'll go home sooner as long as, again, the, the, the resection is inappropriately. But I got to tell you, with a right hepatectomy, what's going to keep them in the hospital is their liver recovery, not necessarily their incision. You know, we have right lobes that can go home in three days or four days. It's not that much different in MIS. Now, I I think people who do it well can maybe do it better than that. And I would certainly never want to stifle innovation, but I think to me, that's where I think the the biggest impact is. Because i tell you the other thing, Elizabeth, is that, you know, you look at something like a hyalurcalangia, which we haven't really discussed, but that's a very technically complex operation. And there have been reports of doing that MIS. I would be very concerned about that. (laughs)
1: Brazil has reported one of those. uh, Right. But that's a different animal.
2: That's probably, I think, I think that, yeah, different podcast. Probably one of the most (laughs) challenging operations we do. All right. We're going to move over a little bit to gallbladder
3: cancer and talk about the opt in trial, which I think there's a lot of excitement
2: for. Yeah. I think there's lots of features of it that make it really unique. Right. So, again, you know, as we talked about, a lot of biliary tract cancer trials are really lumped in. So it's multiple diagnoses all kind of put in together, because again, we don't have the numbers to do individual trials. So I think what's unique about opt-in is that it's really a trial focused on one disease site, gallbladder cancer, and one that I think the surgeon really plays a big role, as you can imagine, because first of all, most of these patients get sent to surgeons first before oncologists, certainly in the localized setting, because they're doing a lap coli, and they come back with their path report, has got cancer in it, and most, you know, and this happens in the community a lot, and most general surgeons will say, well, I Somebody's got to take care of this. I got to figure this out. You know, as we know, the standard approach is to take that patient back and do the radical lymphadenectomy as well as the the liver resection. We can quibble about the extent of the liver resection, but the cancer comes back, right? I mean, it's it's a really aggressive tumor. And so that was the rationale for this design of this trial. And, you know, since a lot of GI oncology is moving towards preoperative therapy, uh, the design was unique to say, well, why don't we just give you know, preoperative therapy. And, uh, uh, and again, I mentioned it was gem as the agent. Uh, and the, the question was always what the inclusion criteria should be, right? Because we know that the T1, uh, T1As probably don't need a re-resection. The T1Bs usually get a re-resection, but it's hardly ever that you find residual disease. So maybe preoperative therapy would be too much for that patient. So really focused on T2 and T3. Because then you get to the T4 patients where you got adjacent organ invasion. And perhaps those patients are not best suited for surgery. Uh, so that's the, 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 the population. Uh, and it's really just a comparing, you know, perioperative therapy versus adjuvant therapy. Um, I do think, you know, it's about 186 patients we need for the trial. It's kind of moving along. Unfortunately, it obviously opened during COVID still, which is unfortunate for everybody. But we really need to get folks to hopefully buy in and participate because it's a, a disease diagnosis that even high volume centers are only going to see about five to ten patients a year. So uh, I really hope to to get folks on board with this.
3: Can you can you talk a little bit about what endpoints you're excited about? You know, kind of what you think, you know, is it gonna be are we gonna have to wait for overall survival or do you think just getting to our zero resection is gonna be dramatically different between these two groups? And is that gonna be enough to convince people?
2: Right. So I think, you know, most um, phase three, you know, NIH, NCI type trials, overall survival is going to be the primary endpoint. And that's what that's where the trial is powered. Um, in the end, that's what really moves the needles. Can we help people live longer? Uh, that's going to take a while, obviously, to, to, to report. I do think that there's a lot of interesting secondary endpoints. So, for example, you know, what is the incidence of residual disease in uh, these patients prospectively stratified by, by stage? Uh, what is the resectability rate with or without chemotherapy? You know, obviously, uh, you know, as Eduardo had kind of mentioned, some patients get very nervous about delaying surgery that in resectable disease. But can we actually, you know, impact the outcomes by giving chemotherapy? You know, there's no uh, there's no built-in laparoscopy uh, at before chemotherapy, but obviously laparoscopy is going to be part of it at the time of uh, surgery, whether it's upfront or after the chemo. Uh, and we know I'd be curious to hear what the kind of the accepted you know standard is. I mean, I typically always laparoscope patients for most G i cancers, uh, but not necessarily the case everywhere. So those are the endpoints I think that are going to be very interesting to look at it. so it's really resectability rate, incidence of residual disease uh, and certainly PFs is going to be part of this as well
1: when when do you think it's going to be finalized?
2: yeah, so you know we're we're still you know we're still kind of accruing um we're hoping to get more sites to come on. Uh, it would really be wonderful if we could uh, involve some of our international partners, because as you know, this disease tends to be more, more common in places like Chile and India, but that's just a challenge you know, with um, NIH-funded trials.
1: Yeah, but the good thing is, James, Sis is um, pretty reasonable about cost. No, it, right? it,
2: it is, it is. I think one of the other challenges, and this is, goes into clinical trial design is, You know, for us in Oregon, for example, it's hard for patients to travel. Um, You know, a lot of the, there's a lot of rural uh, areas, and the trial does mandate that you have chemotherapy at the trial institution. So if there's a way that could be delivered in the community, I think it would really, really help boost accrual. But obviously, you have to be careful with the oversight aspect of things. And these are the kind of nuances when you look at clinical trials and why they accrue or don't accrue, perhaps area where, where we can improve.
1: Yeah, I think we've been uh, bombing you for with multiple questions. I hope. Uh, <laughs> no, I know. love it. I love uh, it. This is great. I mean, we have seen you know, all your picture in Twitter, uh, <laughs> enjoying life, right, right. winter, uh, Thanksgiving.
2: Listen, I, I'm just i happy to happy to do what I do and and enjoy my time off as well. I think that's kind of important for our, you know, own wellness. Um, you know, my wife's also a physician, so we we keep busy lives professionally during the day. We have young kids, but um, we love living out here in Oregon in the Northwest. You know, we're close to the mountains, we're close to the ocean, <laughs> we're uh, we're close to wine country. So uh, it's actually a really really nice place to be. Uh, you know, anytime you're you want to visit, please let me know.
1: You you have any hobby?
2: Uh, so we have a, we love to go take hikes. So we we have you have the opportunity to do that a bunch. In fact, uh, we have a hiking trail not far down here from the hill. Um, we have a golden retriever we like to take up with us. Um, and we certainly enjoy traveling, um, uh, and going places to go hike. Um, you know, my wife, I can, you kind of heard from me, I was kind of raised abroad. Uh, and so I really enjoyed getting to know new places and uh, meeting new people. You know, we just went down to Mexico city, uh, for a fantastic round of conferences. There, uh, had some street tacos, which were phenomenal. So I love kind of sampling the food. Everywhere we go, um, you know we have an annual cholangiocarcinoma Foundation meeting in Asia as well. And so I love connecting with folks there. Uh, and I tell you, there are some places in Asia where, you know, they may not write about it. they may not be as, you know, uh, present in the literature, but they do amazing operations. I mean, really, very talented surgeons, very talented clinicians. And again, it's where the disease is. And so they really have very unique experience. Boy, if we could open clinical trials there, with the infrastructure we have here, we could really start answering some of these questions.
1: Why don't you tell us a little bit more about your connection with Brazil? You briefly mentioned it in your brief introduction.
2: Yeah, no, my family's all still down there. So my parents spend half time uh, in Chicago and then as soon as it gets to be October and and the temperature goes down, they go down to Brazil. Um, For me, it's sort of been, uh, I was never trained there, never went to school there, but I've always felt a deep connection. Um, so it was great to connect with my peers and colleagues in Brazil. And so every chance uh, I get, I try to go down there and uh, be part of their uh, surgical oncology meetings. Uh, they have a wonderful meeting every two years called the Brazilian oncology week, where they basically, if you can imagine, put together SSO, Astro and ASCO of Brazil, all in one large meeting. So it's a truly multidisciplinary uh, week, uh, and, you know, Brazil is a big country. It's, you know, almost as big as the U.S. And so, again, lots of uh, very talented uh, physicians, clinicians, researchers. Um, and it's great to build that connection, especially, you know, as the HPBA, as you know, is is truly an America's uh, uh, association. And so I've been very, very delighted to see how that integration has occurred.
1: Best football player.
2: Oh, all right. Here we go. Now this this Now you're getting to the real serious subject. All right. So I was too young for Pele. So obviously Pele is a, my parents' generation. You may remember a guy named Zico. Yeah. So, and let me tell you about Zico. So Zico played on the Brazilian team. That was a team with Socrates, Branco, Taffarel. They've never won a World Cup, that whole team. Yeah. But I was in Milan uh, when they played in the World Cup in Spain. And they played Italy in the semifinals semifinal quarterfinals and zico yeah, it was 82 i believe um yeah. zico was on a breakaway and the italian defender pulled on his shirt and ripped it in half and the ref never called it and there's a very classic picture of zico with his shirt ripped showing it to the ref and so that's you know to me was sort of growing up as a kid um but i gotta tell you you know so one of my other big favorites has always been Maradona, you know, Maradona, even though he's an Argentinian and we have this, you know, conflict, you just can't deny the skill that he had. And so uh, it was great growing up in that, in that era.
1: That was a tricky question because if you will say <laughs> Tom Brady, I was, saying uh, say like,
2: Oh my God, are we are <laughs> talking about another. That's what I was thinking, I'm
3: confused. If we didn't lose the HPBA audience with the Clangio, we definitely lost it at this point.
2: Only the top half of the HVBA, the bottom, the South American contingent is still there.
3: (laughs) Wow, this has been great. We really appreciate your time. Since we're going to consider this our first Latin American crossover, why don't you guys do the sign-off?
2: Oh, fantastic. Wow, I'll just say that uh, foi meu uh, meu prazer de conversar com vocês e espero que fazemos mais dessas uh, conferências, talvez em português também, com os nossos colegas uh, no Brasil. E eu espero te ver de novo em Miami. Na Everybody
3: here is perked <laughs> up in Miami. We're all excited. <laughs> <laughs>